This morning's reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, which can be found on page 120, sorry, 1,233 of the Pew Bibles. One like a son of man. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand And of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, Excuse me. Well, I just... I think the youth group had... um, there we are. Uh, please do keep that open, uh, Revelation, second half of chapter one. That's what we're going to be uh, looking at together um, today. Uh, but I want to begin uh, by reminding you, it may be a TV show that you're familiar with. It may not be. It's called The Voice. It's on Saturday night telly. It's a talent show, and it first aired in 2012. It's actually still going today, although no longer on the BBC. It was pretty unique at the time. I don't know if you remember, but it was unique because um, as the contestant began singing, the judges would actually have their backs turned. They couldn't see the performer. They could only hear the voice. And if and when they felt that the voice was good enough to grab their attention, then they'd, they'd make a big show of it, but they'd hit the button in front of them and their chair would dramatically swing round and they'd get to see the person behind the voice. Well, in our verses for today, John, who wrote down this book of the Revelation, he hears the voice behind him. It's a loud voice. It's properly loud. It's trumpet loud. 
And this voice, verse 11, instructs him to write down what he sees and send it to the seven churches, which he does, by the way, which is why we have this in our hands this morning. But look with me at verse 12. John turns round to see the voice, and in doing so, he has revealed to him a vision of Jesus as he has never seen him before. And we will get to that vision in just a moment, but there's just something I'd like you to notice before, and that is in verse 9, how John describes himself. John isn't sitting in a comfy judge's chair, is he? He tells us he's on the island of Patmos, which granted today, you might think, well, that's a popular Mediterranean holiday resort in the Aegean Sea, which it is. But when John was there, it was less sun loungers by the sea and much more hard labour in the heat. See, in John's day, Patmos was a Roman penal colony. So think of it as a prison island, if you like. And John, we learn, has been exiled there because of his faith in Jesus. His wanting to share the gospel, the good news about Jesus, with other people. The Romans didn't like that. The Roman emperor didn't like that. And so John finds himself imprisoned on Patmos. But please don't think for a moment that he is grumbling in this letter. His description of himself there in verse 9 is actually very helpful because it's a description in many ways of every Christian believer, both then and today, whether we're on Patmos or not. He begins by saying that that their brother, remembering that every Christian is a part of God's family. If you're a follower of Jesus, then every other Christian is your brother or sister in Christ. He says, I'm your brother and companion, that is partner or fellow sharer in, fellow sharer in what, John? Well, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. Now, that might seem like a a peculiar combination at first, but what John's doing in that language is giving us a big context as to the, a big hint as to the context of this letter, why it's written in the first place, as well as giving us a reminder of the context of the Christian life more generally. John knows that all those who follow the king, Jesus, as such, therefore, you are part of his kingdom in the present, which is good news. But notice that being a part of the kingdom goes hand in hand in the present with facing suffering or persecution in the present. Now, that's not John's suffering for being obnoxious or obstinate or obstreperous, no. He's talking about when a Christian suffers for their trust in Jesus, for listening to his voice, for taking to heart what Jesus teaches. When he was on earth, Jesus told us that this would be the case for all his followers. We will be persecuted because he was first persecuted. That is why patient endurance is necessary in the Christian life. Yes, we're a part of God's kingdom now. We're following the king now. There will be suffering now. Our life will follow the pattern of our king That's why John speaks of patient endurance. And in many ways, that's a summary of what this whole book of uh, Revelation is encouraging. It's seeking to strengthen and help God's people patiently endure. And it doesn't just say, well, grit your teeth, keep your head down and battle through it. That's not what it does at all. It gives us a wonderful vision of Jesus. 
And they need that then. We may need that today because it's not hard to understand how that mix of suffering for Jesus, whilst he himself is absent, might move some to reconsider whether it's at all worth it. Why not just give up on Jesus? That'd make life easier, wouldn't it? Or or maybe not give up on him entirely, maybe just give in a little bit, make a little less fuss about him. Well, that would make the emperor happy in John's day. So maybe don't speak of him so often, John. Stop sharing his testimony, verse 9, with other people. That might get you off the island, John. 2,000 years later... You and I, we can face the temptation, can't we, to just turn the volume down a little bit on Jesus. Thankfully, we don't have a Roman Caesar ruling over us, demanding our allegiance and our worship and punishing us if we don't. But at the same time, Jesus' voice today is just one of many that we could choose to be listening to. Do you really have to take this Jesus stuff so seriously? It's getting a bit awkward. See, there's other voices around us as well, aren't there? By all means, you do you, but please keep this Jesus stuff to yourself. Wouldn't life be easier without Jesus? You could do what you want, when you want, how you want. You'd have more time for yourself. You'd certainly have more money too. Maybe just turn the volume down a little bit on this Jesus stuff. There's a good lad. You see, although the suffering we face today is different, praise God. After all, here in the UK, we're unlikely to be threatened with prison camp, are we, for our trust in Jesus? Yet we'll know, through the work of Open Doors and others, actually fellow brothers and sisters around the world are still imprisoned for their faith. But whatever our suffering for Jesus might look like, and that may differ, our destination, just like John's, is the same. And as kingdom people, we too need patient endurance, as we seek to stick with Jesus, as we remember that the best is yet to come. During my sabbatical last year, I was catching up with an old friend back home in the southwest, and at one point I asked after her husband, who's a lovely man, who's, he's not yet a Christian. I enjoyed hearing about all he's been up to, and uh, since taking early retirement. It seems he's very much got the sailing bug, so when he's not on his own boat, he's out on the boat with mates on theirs. But what Catherine said next said next really stuck with me. She said this, Andy, I keep telling him, he's busy trying to live his best life now, but I know my best life is still to come. That is the life where patient endurance isn't required. That is the life where the suffering is over. That is the life beyond when Jesus has returned and made all things new. Now, Catherine, she's one of the smiliest people you can meet But of course, her Christian life, like every Christian's life, endures its ups and downs. There will be times when we suffer for our faith in Jesus. But she's patiently enduring because she knows that as one who follows the king, listens to his voice, her best life is yet to come. Well, let's now turn our attention to this voice, where hopefully this morning we'll see three reasons why the voice of Jesus should always have our full attention and encourage us to patiently endure. Here's the first. It is the voice of the glorious King Jesus. Now, we're not going to cover this description in every single detail, partly 
because we'll focus on different bits in the weeks to come. You see, the different attributes of Jesus' character mentioned here are picked up in each of the seven letters that we'll be looking at over the next seven weeks. But mainly, we're not going to unpick it now because I don't think the point is to try and unpick it. The purpose of this vision is not so that we can deconstruct it, but to help each of us this morning in some way try to grasp the wonder of the whole. This was helpfully explained back in the 60s by one Bible commentator called J.B. Caird. He encourages us to recognise that whilst each part of this description is theologically significant, and it is, we must make sure, he said, we don't unweave the rainbow. That is to say, the verses here should lead us to exclamation or wonder, not simply explanation. There's a difference, isn't there, between Wikipedia describing an optical phenomenon caused by refraction, internal reflection and dispersion of light in water droplets, resulting in a continuous spectrum of light appearing in the sky, and someone like William Wordsworth writing, my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. Here then in these verses is a vision to help us behold something of Jesus' majesty, glory, power, wisdom, might and strength and be amazed. To steal from the Apostle Paul writing to his friend Titus, what we see revealed here is the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I think it's fair to say that John has never seen this Jesus before. Certainly nothing like the Jesus he used to go fishing with when he was on earth. Nothing like the Jesus who hung on a Roman cross and died. But as we look at the whole, we are faced with Jesus' divine majesty and glory. He is the glorious King. And this is the voice who is speaking, the glorious King Jesus. Are we listening? Will we turn our chairs around and behold him? Secondly, if that is who the voice is, let's think about what the voice says. The voice who comforts the individual. John has literally been floored, hasn't he, by what he hears and sees. Jesus in this vision is such an awesome sight for him to behold, not only symbolic and significant, but really scary. John falls over in fear, but Jesus doesn't leave him there. To his relief, John is not crushed. He's comforted. Verse 17, then he, that is Jesus, placed his right hand on me, and said, well, you're in big trouble. No, he didn't say that. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And if you're at a loose end this week, go through the Gospels, those four historical accounts of the Lord Jesus when he was on earth, and look at all the times he says, do not be afraid. Jesus came to comfort us. Uh, we will know. Um, Oh, it's there. Brilliant. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, Tales of Narnia, Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, at one point the children are learning about Aslan, the lion, from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, Beaver. And this is how it goes. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. John need not fear being consumed, being destroyed. Yes, Jesus is holy and John is not. Yes, Jesus is pure and John is not. Yes, on his own, John is in a hopeless situation, but he's not alone. And so he need not be afraid. Because the one who reaches down to him to comfort him is the first and the last, the living one. John need not fear death because Jesus is the one who was dead and is alive forever and ever. Jesus has power over life and death. He literally holds the keys. Well, that is some power, isn't it? That is all power. So John need not fear, for Jesus is good. He's very good. He's the king. I tell you. So whilst when we behold something of the glory of Jesus, as John does here, we should fall down before him, it need not be in fear, but in worship. Well, as we move to the final point this morning, I want you to notice that Jesus comforting John is not all that's going on in these verses. I wonder if you noticed where Jesus was given all that has been going on we can understand perhaps why John was so consumed with what he heard and saw of Jesus in the vision but did you notice where Jesus was what he was doing see if I were to ask you the question now what is Jesus doing now right now I wonder how you'd answer that That question particularly uh, perhaps holds significance for the first century Christians who, like John, were suffering for their faith. Patient endurance is much harder, I want to suggest, if you think Jesus has left you all alone. Well, he's in heaven and I'm down here suffering. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus is not currently doing nothing. He's in heaven at God's right hand. He's interceding for us, we're told. He's praying for us. Do you know that? Jesus prays for you. He prays for us as a church. But here in Revelation chapter 1, we're also reminded that Jesus is doing something else. And it's the most beautiful picture that demonstrates to us Jesus' care for the church, for the church global, but for the church individual, for us this morning. And it's this, the voice who cares for the church see verse 12 there are seven golden lampstands and Jesus is amongst them verse 13 he's in the midst of them in the middle of these lampstands we're told the seven stars as well that are in his right hand he he holds them in his hand and we're told they're the angels of these churches which seems to be some sort of spiritual heavenly counterpart of the church here on earth well they're under Jesus care and control but so are the churches on earth Jesus is in the midst of them now we might read about seven golden lampstands and think that sounds a little bit odd it may not be immediately significant to us Although if you were here last week, that number seven, especially in the book of Revelation, when we hear seven, we mustn't just count with our fingers. It's a symbolic number, isn't it? Meaning wholeness, completeness, or perfection. 
And at the end of the chapter in verse 20, we're told that these seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, that's not just the numerical seven churches we meet in chapter 2 and 3, but the symbolic seven, that is all the churches on earth through history. You see, from next week, we'll see how each letter to each church in chapters 2 and 3 is not only for that church at that time. See, each of those seven letters are addressed to a geographical church, but each letter ends with the same phrase. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches, plural. So, for example, the letter to the church in Ephesus is not only for the church in Ephesus, and not only for that specific time, but for all the churches, all the time. All the churches in Asia Minor then, of which we know there were more than seven anyway, and all the churches today, including St. Bartholomew's Arborfield. And so we're to listen to the voice not only because it's the voice of the one who's speaking is King Jesus, but because it's the voice of the King who cares for us, who cares for us as his church. You see, in the Old Testament, a lamp such as that would be found in the temple, and it would be the role of a priest to make sure the flame continued to burn. That would mean checking there's enough oil, trimming the wick, that sort of thing, making sure the lamp gave light. Well, here in Jesus, in John's vision of Jesus, there's not just one lamp anymore, is there? There's seven. And Jesus walks amongst them, amongst his churches, in the midst of them. He knows what they're going through because he's right there with them. He's watching and he's working for his churches. He's right there in the middle of all they experience, caring for them, caring for us in the same way. And the letters to the churches will help us receive his care, help us to be that light on a hill, giving light to the world that Jesus calls us to be. You see, we're not on our own. Jesus is amongst us by his spirit, caring for us. Now, as we go through chapters two and three, are there problems amongst the churches? Yes. But look who walks among them. It's King Jesus. He walks, he tends, he rules, he knows, he speaks. So can I trust that Jesus will succeed in looking after his churches? Well, yes. Look at the vision of Jesus we're given in this chapter. The churches may be weak, but he is mighty strong. So to finish, the voice of Jesus, it's loud like a trumpet. It's like the sound of rushing waters. We're to make sure that we're listening, taking to heart what he says. For his voice is the voice of the majestic and glorious one who comforts the individual and who cares for his church. When we feel isolated, may we be those who turn and look and listen. When we're tempted to turn from Jesus, may we turn back to him and look and listen when we gather as church family on a Sunday morning, may we be those who turn and look and listen. For he is our king. He is our glorious king. Let's have a moment's quiet and then I will lead us in a short prayer.
Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Father God, we want to thank you for this vision that you gave to John of Jesus. We thank you that John wrote it down so that we might see him today. And we pray, Lord, that in the week ahead, with the help of your spirit, you would enlarge our vision of the Lord Jesus, that we would grasp more of his glory, more of his majesty, more of his wisdom and strength and power and might, that we might know more of his comfort and more of his care. Thank you that as a church family, you have not left us on our own, but by your spirit, the Lord Jesus walks amongst us today. We praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing again. And as we turn our attention uh, to sharing the Lord's Supper together, let me just read to you the words of verse 2. Crown him, this is Jesus, the Lord of life, who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories. Now we sing. As the music starts, please do. Stand and sing.